Hello, we're going to think about the case of Israel Lipsky and the journalism of W.T. Stead. By way of a brief introduction to the case, we're in Whitechapel, technically in St. George in the East, just south of the commercial road in the summer of 1887. The body of a young married woman, Miriam Angel, is discovered in her apparently locked room at 16 Batty Street. She has been poisoned with nitric acid. Under her bed is a man, the lodger from upstairs, Israel Lipsky. He too has been burned by the acid, but comparatively lightly. He's alive and is taken away to hospital. The bottle in which the acid had been contained is found in the room. Lipsky instantly becomes the police's prime suspect for the murder. All of this happens on 28th of June 1887, high summer. On the 29th of July, a day over a calendar month later, Lipsky is on trial at the Old Bailey. After two days of evidence, over two dozen witnesses for the prosecution are heard there are no witnesses for the defence. The jury finds Lipsky guilty of murder in nine minutes, and he is sentenced to death. So far, the Pall Mall Gazette, a popular newspaper edited by the firebrand W.T. Stead, has paid only passing attention to the case, reporting the original offence, the inquest, the police court hearing, and the trial in nothing more than cursory terms. But on the 1st of August, the day after Lipsky has death sentence, a first spark of interest was shown. Pondering almost to itself in its occasional notes column, the newspaper said that, quote, the result of the trial of Lipsky leaves several points unsettled and the case was, quote, one which calls for consideration at the hands of the authorities before the death sentence is enforced. The unsettled points identified by the Pall Mall Gazette were not, in fact, the ones which might feel unsettling to the modern reader. Anyone hearing the bare outline of the case as presented above might feel anxious at the brief interval between the crime and the trial, little more than one calendar month, and that the absence of any witnesses for the defence might have made for a lopsided hearing. In fact, Lipsky's case was not substantially different in these respects to others of its period. Looking at the old Bailey records for homicide trials in, in 1887, we find 32 cases in which the date of the offence can be identified. The mean average interval between the offence and the opening of the sessions in which these cases were tried was 33 days. At the lowest end of the scale, one homicide, a road traffic accident, was heard at sessions beginning only 13 days after the alleged offence. At the highest end, one case, a complicated death by arson with possible insurance components, 
arrived at court for sessions beginning 85 days, that is 12 weeks and one day, after the alleged offence. In between these extremes, a full 50% of homicide trials occurred between 21 and 38 days after the commission of the offence, with a median of 29 days. Since Lipsky's case was not the first to be heard at the July 1887 sessions, we've been giving him the doubtful benefit of the extra days between the start of the sessions and the commencement of his trial in particular. There were, in fact, only 27 days between the date of his offence and the beginning of the sessions. It may have taken 31 days for him to come to trial, but the defence would have to be ready to go in 27. Still, this was entirely typical of the timeframes by which justice operated in late Victorian England. Nor is the lack of witnesses to Lipsky's side of the story a variation from the norm of the time. We know of 31 homicide cases tried at the Old Bailey in 1887, in which records are comprehensive enough to be able to identify whether witnesses for the defence were called. In 22 of the 31 cases, there were no defence witnesses at all. In the other nine, a total of 35 defence witnesses appeared. The mean average for the entire set is 1.13 witnesses per case. The median average is, of course, zero. The highest number in any individual case within the set is eight, a street fight which ended in a stabbing. Obviously, some forms of homicide were easier to witness than others, and Lipsky's alleged offence, the secretive and acute poisoning of his downstairs neighbour in her bedroom, was not one which came with witnesses attached. Unsettling though we find these factors, the time between the offence and the trial and the absence of defence witnesses, they were not unusual at the time. The Pall Mall Gazette's curiosity was piqued instead by first the question of whether the door to Miriam Angel's room was really locked from the inside, or whether it just had a tendency to get stuck. This mattered because Lipsky's defence was a novel one. He said that he and Miriam Angel had both been the victims of the violence of two other men. By implication, he contended that the real murderers had not in fact locked the door at all, and that it was just thought to be locked by those on the outside who, eventually realising that something was wrong in Miriam's room, forced the door open. The evidence at the trial tended to show that the door had in fact been locked, but even so, the remainder of the circumstances of the case were hardly explained by Lipsky's story, even if one took the door out of it. Beyond that, the newspaper wondered where, quote, the second ounce of nitric acid came from, as two were apparently employed and Lipsky only bought one, end quote. This had also been discussed at the trial. Lipsky was known to have bought acid from a local hardware dealer. But were two ounces really necessary to cause the damage seen to Miriam Lipsky and the fabrics of the bed and Lipsky's costume? Or did a little acid go a long way? 
the bulk of the evidence suggested that Lipsky's quantity was sufficient to cover all of it. These first shots across the bow of the verdict were the earliest signs of what became an obsession at the Pall Mall Gazette. Like all the best conspiracy theories, the newspaper's thought process started with uncertainty and spiralled from there into rumour, wish fulfilment and outright fake news. The understated doubts expressed by the Pall Mall Gazette on the 1st of August were left behind by an escalation into vehemence and sensationalism. Left behind, too, was much of the evidence upon which Lipsky was convicted. Contesting the verdict forensically and on the grounds of the evidence given in court was not the style of the Gazette's editor, Stead. He preferred a spicier approach. Stead had shot into public consciousness in 1885 as a result of a series of articles collectively grouped under the evocative title of The Maiden Tribute of Modern Babylon. In those articles, Stead, who had got a sniff of a trade in underage girls, showed that it was possible to purchase a girl for a paltry sum of money and force her into prostitution. He showed that it was possible by doing it, although he rescued the girl, Eliza Armstrong, whom he had bought from her impoverished mother for five pounds before she was raped. Still, Eliza had undergone an internal inspection to prove her virginity had been placed in a brothel and sedated with chloroform, all part of the realism of the exercise. The consequences of this stunt were significant and a change in the law followed, affording better protection from sexual exploitation to children. But I'm not going to guide you in understanding Stead's motives in the Maiden Tribute case. Moral philosophy does guide us. Jeremy Bentham, for example, located the moral value of an action in its outcomes and asserted that the most virtuous action <clears throat> was the one that did the greatest good for the greatest number. In this way of thinking, utilitarianism, the traumatic experience to which Eliza was subjected would have been considered to be a sort of necessary evil, and that its virtue lay in the positive consequences for other vulnerable children who might have been similarly exploited. Immanuel Kant would have disagreed. He would have said that some actions were categorically wrong that the moral virtue of an action could not be located in its outcomes, but in its intrinsic qualities, and that buying a child and submitting her to a brothel was indefensible, irrespective of the intended consequences. The story goes that Eliza was eventually none the worse for her ordeal, uh, but who knows, really. Was Stead really motivated solely or purely by a concern for the vulnerable? The publication of his articles caused an uptick in sales of the Pall Mall Gazette, and here was a possible commercial interest to put alongside any more altruistic ones which he might have had. By injecting himself into the narrative, he became a journalist who didn't just report the news. He made the news and then reported it. He was an active participant in the story, not just a post hoc conduit for it. 
If human experimentation of this sort could be justified commercially, were there compelling moral reasons to shy away from it? Stead even turned his subsequent imprisonment because he had, as a matter of fact, broken the law in pursuit of his professional objective into a badge of honour. And his description of what prison was like brings to mind the tabloid cliché about prisons being like holiday camps, uh, to which the best rebuttal I ever heard was someone who said that anyone who said that prisons were like holiday camps must never have been to prison, or indeed to a holiday camp. No thinking individual considers the sexual exploitation of children to be an acceptable characteristic of society. But I suggest that we sense in Stead's work some of the paradoxes which were built into the man himself. In my introduction to Trial of Israel Lipsky, I described Stead as a swashbuckling and impetuous, passionate and inflexible, inspiring, inspiring and maddening, genuine and disingenuous. When we come to consider his newspaper's evolving attitude to the Lipsky case, I would argue that all the same contradictions are visible. <coughs> we can consider the Palmel Gazette's interest in the Lipsky case in three parts. Firstly, before Lipsky's conviction. Secondly, between Lipsky's conviction and his execution on the 22nd of August 1887. And thirdly, after Lipsky's execution. The first of those we've dealt with, the newspaper handled the matter fairly conventionally, covering it in little detail, reporting it as news, and giving no indication of the excitement to come. The third, when we come to it, will not take us long. But let us spend the majority of the rest of our time here thinking about the middle period, the three weeks or so between Lipsky's conviction and his execution, over the course of which Stead drove his paper into its frenzied, minute-by-minute -minute coverage of the case for Lipsky's innocence. Trial by newspaper was not necessarily a new thing, but Stead realised that he had, in Lipsky's case, all the ingredients needed for a big splash. Let us assume that one of his motives was to see justice done in a case which was admittedly tricky in places even if that trickiness had not actually been articulated in the discovery of a compelling defence in time for the trial. Among his other motives might have been sales, as discussed previously, and his antipathy towards the vacillating Home Secretary Henry Matthews, whom Stead saw as a particularly apt, apt target. The Home Secretary was the public official who had to decide whether Lipsky would hang or whether clemency would be extended to him, Stead pushed urgently at the levers of popular opinion, watching carefully for the effect of his work on Matthew's thought processes. If nothing else, the Pall Mall Gazette's Lipsky articles, whether written by Stead or merely directed by him, make for powerful and fascinating reading. The methodology was an extension of that used in the Maiden Tribute case. The Gazette's journalists were out and about in the East End, hoovering up rumours and innuendo, shuttling back and forth between hardware shops as the story spanned from one to another, 
finding defects in the armour of the case against Lipsky wherever they could, and then subtly widening them at their edges wherever necessary to accentuate the vulnerability of the soft machine inside. The police, who were, at the request of the Home Office, following up every new hint that appeared in the paper, had been forced into a race which they had no hope of winning. They were reacting to the proactivity of the Gazette's industrious method, and the Gazette was spitting out several editions every day, developing the appetite of a reading public who were carried, a lot carried along by the rush of Stead's fanaticism. For convenience, we're going to focus on one particular aspect of the, of the Gazette's case for Lipsky's innocence. In its edition of the 18th of August, new and startling evidence was discovered. Mr. Buchner, a chemist of 149 Houndsditch, had, at or around the end of June, sold two ounces of nitric acid to, quote, a dark man, rather square-built, hair-dark brown, a foreign Jew by his face. The customer brought his own bottle to the shop, an oily one to which Bruckner's label would not easily adhere, and said that he wanted the acid for staining sticks. Umbrella stick-making was not just Lipsky's trade, but also conveniently that of the parties he accused of being the real murderers. Buchner described the men as having, quote, short, the, the man as having, quote, short whiskers coming a little below the ear and a slight moustache. But despite this, he was unsure that he would recognise him again if he saw him. Uh, still, here was another contender for the role of the murderer of Miriam Angel, and by the description, this was not Lipsky. Lipsky was known to have acquired his own acid from a different shop one on Backchurch Lane run by Charles Moore, although he also said, and so did the Pall Mall Gazette, that he did not use nitric acid in his work. On the 20th of August, we are therefore two days away from Lipsky's execution, the Gazette published a line drawing of Buchner's shop, which it said was where the bottle found in Miriam Angel's room, quote, was filled with nitric acid, by the chemist. But already this was looking like a step too far. Over the course of two days, the contender, Buchner's customer with the oily bottle, had rapidly crystallised in the pages of the Gazette into the murderer. How else to explain the discovery of Buchner's customer's bottle in Miriam's bedroom? Buchner's mysterious customer must have been there. The oily bottle must have shed Buchner's label between the purchase of the acid and its use in the murder. Or was there another way of explaining it? A list of questions occurred to the Home Office mandarins who were dealing with the case. On what day was the purchase at Buchner's made? At what hour? Was any record kept of the transaction? How was it that having this evidence, Buchner never came forward as a witness. And from which wholesale shop did Buchner buy his stock of acid? This list is still in the Home Office files relating to the case. 
and none of its questions was really answered by the Gazette's article. You can see everything happen in real time. A.K. Stevenson, the chemical analyst to the Home Office, received a letter from Godfrey Lushington, the permanent undersecretary, on the day that the Gazette's first article about Bookner's transaction was published, the 18th of August. Stevenson's reply to Lushington is dated the same day. The investigative apparatus of the establishment whirred into motion. The next day, the 19th of August, Buchner was seen by Inspector John Tunbridge of Scotland Yard, who asked for a sample of his acid. Buchner provided one and named his wholesaler as Davy, Yates and Routledge of Southwark. Tunbridge set off, crossed the river and identified two different classes of acid provided to Buchner by the wholesaler. One purchase was for nitric acid of specific gravity 1.360. The other was for acid nitricum of specific gravity 1.420. Tunbridge took samples of both and then took all three of his samples to Stevenson's laboratory. Stevenson was out at the time, but his assistant, Hopkins, analysed the samples. None of the three exhibited a chemical characteristic which Stevenson's testing of other artefacts concerned in the case had already revealed. The acid that had killed Miriam Angel was, in fact, a crude mixture of nitric and sulfuric acid. Buchner's acid was measurably purer, and so was his wholesalers. In the meantime, the nitric acid sold in Charles Moore's shop turned out to be a mixture of nitric and sulfuric acid, just like the acid used in the murder. By stumps on the 19th of August, Buchner's evidence had been found to be of no value. His customer had not been involved in Miriam's murder. The next day, however, the Pall Mall Gazette, still pushing the theme, printed its line drawing of Buchner's shop and continued to assert that the acid that killed Miriam had been bought there. This was a microcosm of the push-me-pull-you struggle between Stead and the establishment that went on for three weeks. Stead would discover something, or not, if not exactly discover it, then ventilate wildly and carelessly about it, at least until the next thing came along. And then the police and the Home Office would examine the claims, test what could be tested, and so on. At no point did any of Stead's revelations turn out to be as crushing as his readers might have been led to believe. This is not to say that Stead did not get results, but even that statement depends on what one considers his motives to be. Did he discombobulate the Home Secretary? Very much. Did he sell newspapers? Definitely. Did his exertions lead to a better understanding of what had happened to Miriam, or to clarity about Lipsky's role in her murder? Well, yes, but not perhaps in the way he had hoped. 
Lipsky confessed to the murder on the 21st of August and was hanged the next day. For Stead, this brought everything to a remarkably neat conclusion. All's well that ends well, the Gazette said. Few criminals ever went to the gallows who'd better deserved their fate. In retrospect, and here we reach the third of our identified phases post-execution, Stead glossed his paper's role in the matter as a necessary one. He thought that holding the feet of the powerful to the flames of something that might pass for truth was a newspaper's purpose. Being wrong about, well, everything had just meant that valuable inquiries were initiated in areas where questions appeared to remain. Once those inquiries were exhausted and the confession was made, the newspaper had, in Stead's view, performed its critical function. Its failure to substantiate its case was, he thought, also a measure of its success. Some years ago, Donald Trump found out that some people were saying that Barack Obama had not been born in the United States of America. Then Donald Trump started saying it too, adding variations here and there. Perhaps Obama was born in America, but perhaps there was something else on his birth certificate that Obama might be reluctant to reveal. Perhaps Obama's religion at birth was Islam, not Christianity. When Obama published his birth certificate to put a stop to the matter, perhaps, said Trump, the certificate was a forgery. Trump had sent, quote, a team of researchers to Hawaii to find out more. Nothing was good enough to prove to Trump that there was no story here, until one day he appeared to tire of repeating the same lies in public. I finished it, he said, meaning that his endeavours had forced Obama to publish the certificate, which had put an end to the baseless rumours and speculation about it. Trump failed to mention that he had taken the leading role in propagating the rumours in the first place. So it was with Stead. We may ask ourselves whether he was really interested in the justice of Lipsky's conviction or whether the opportunity to spin the story into a lucrative scandal was just too tempting to resist. Ever the utilitarian, he justified the means by reference to the ends. Anyone who doubts the legitimacy of Lipsky's conviction today is well advised to examine thoroughly the case papers in the National Archives. If you think that there was a miscarriage of justice, your opinion will have significantly better foundations if you first dispense with any theory associated with Stead. Thank you.